Hey, good morning, Watermark. Good to see you all. I'm glad you could join us here this morning. Today we are in Acts chapter uh, chapter 9. We're going to do verses 1 through 9. Um, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and we're going to jump right into this. Got a lot to do this morning, and a new colic prayer at the end and everything. So, uh, yeah, kind of center yourself with me. Let's take a moment. Let's ask for wisdom, uh, for God to be present with us to speak to us. Let's pray. Father... We come to you seeking wisdom and understanding. Whatever you are doing, we want to see it. We want to take part in it. Um, whatever part you have for us to play, make it obvious. Let us hear you when you speak to us. Uh, reform our hearts, change our minds. Um, allow us to be a holy people, not swayed by uh, anything other than, uh, than, than King Jesus. I pray that you would remain our center and nothing else. Be with us as we open this, uh, this text and these ancient words and we read them. Um, we read the stories of the, of the early followers of you. I pray that uh, you would be in this, that you would speak to us through it. Give us a, a wider range, a bigger picture of what you have for us. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Adjust my chair, clear my throat. Here we go. Um, so first off, uh, I want to start with the idea uh, of what Luke has been doing for the last eight chapters. We've just we've come into chapter nine. This is where things change. We're introduced to uh, um, our main character that he will become the center sort of of the character uh, for much of the New Testament. So for the last eight chapters, um, Luke has been systematically deconstructing um, the God of the Old Testament for us. Um, all of the ways that we thought we knew God in the ancient, in the ancient world uh, for God's people, the Israelites. Um, and Luke has been sort of systematically deconstructing all of this. Uh, he's taken the tabernacle and the temple and replaced them with Jesus. He's taken the word of God, the scriptures, the text, and, and the words of the prophets and replaced them with Jesus. He has taken the law, replaced that with Jesus. He's taken, and then he's actually taken... God's presence in the world and replace that with Jesus, not just Jesus, but the body of Christ now led by the spirit. Um, this is, I hope you understand the new Testament starts off by deconstructing our understanding of God. Um, and, and giving us Jesus so that we know now that God is like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Um, and so we shift and we adjust because there's new information, right? Um, so now um, we're going to see Luke present us with a view of God that is not just centered on one particular group of people in the world, no longer just the Jews, no longer just Israel. Now he is going to sort of stretch this out and, and pan the camera. And we've seen him doing this already. We've seen um, Luke including ostracized people already people that have never been a part of the story of God's people. Um, in chapters six and seven, we have these Greek Christians. Um, and then in chapter eight, you have this Ethiopian eunuch. And so this thing is expanding. You have the Samaritans coming in also in chapter eight. It's just this ever expanding picture of what God is doing and bringing more and more in. And as God's people understand what God is doing, God's people adjust and they change their mind. Okay. Today, we're talking about conversion. We're talking about change. We're talking about how we listen to God. Okay. Not only that, how we help others listen to God. Um, because right now the camera is going to 
it's going to pan one more time. It's gone from all these ostracized, marginalized people, and then it pans even farther, and it goes back to God's people, to Israel, that are being expanded, and it focuses in on someone else, just like the Ethiopian eunuch at one end of the spectrum over here, and God has locked onto him and is chasing him. Now we see God on the other end of the spectrum locking onto somebody else and chasing after them, okay? The man's name is Saul. He will become known as the Apostle Paul later on. And this is his story of how God chased him down, tackled him, and made him his own, okay? Uh, read with me Acts chapter 9. We're going to start at 1 through 5. It says, <clears throat> it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Okay, I want to start with the, uh, the mystical experience that Paul has here. There's a lot going on, and I want to help you sort of understand um, Paul's mindset as this is happening. Uh, what Paul experiences here is tailor-made for him. And I'm going to talk about this. Uh, first off, who was Paul? Paul was Saul. I'm, I'm going to interchange Paul and Saul. We'll talk about the name change another time. Um, but when I say Paul, I mean Saul. And when I say Saul, I mean Paul. Just know that. Uh, first off, Saul was a Pharisee. He was raised elite and powerful. He was from the top rung of society. He was highly educated, very wealthy. Um, you will sometimes hear people talk about Paul being a humble tent maker, okay? Um, and oftentimes you'll hear that language of him being called a humble tent maker used in tandem. Uh, oftentimes, you know, um, this is brought up a lot when, when pastors talk about Paul, when pastors are talking about being bi bivocational. And that's fine. That's great. Um, uh, and they'll use Paul as an example of bivocational. Um, the evidence tells us, the evidence that we have tells us that the only reason Paul actually became a tent maker was not to make a living. Um, he was a Pharisee and he was a public speaker. They made a lot of money just doing these things. Um, the reason Paul became a tent maker is literally because it was, it was actually the lowest, most shameful job that you could have in the city of Tarsus, where he's from. Uh, was to be a Tarshish linen worker. Paul was raised on one end of the spectrum. Um, and after, apparently after this, uh, this happening in, in Acts chapter nine, um, he flees and he spends many years studying and learning. And, and part of the reaction to what he finds on the, temp, on, the, on the road to Damascus is that when he realizes who Jesus is and he learns the story of Jesus from these Christians whom he, now, whom he starts spending time with, it changes how he lives entirely. He goes from the top rung of society um, to the bottom on purpose, not on accident. We have a man named, uh, in, the, in the first century, his name is Dio uh, Chrysostom uh, in the first century. And he's like a, a Roman consul. He's, he's high up on the list of, of, of powerful people in Rome. And there's, there's this letter we have of his when he's giving a speech. And he mentions and insults um, the, what he calls the linen workers of Tarshish, the Tarshish linen workers. He specifically says this. He says, he says that the linen workers are known to be a useless rabble. And he goes on 
to insult them and talk about how shameful they are. They are the lowest, they're the bottom. If you think of whatever in your city would be the bottom rung of society, whatever job that would be, if Paul was living in your city and this happened again, and then Paul learned about Jesus, who gave up all of his power and privilege and glory to be born in a manger, Paul would have heard this story and he would have adjusted his life and given up because this is what Paul does. He's, he's zealous. And Paul gives up all of his honor and privilege and he, and he becomes the lowest of the low in his city. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. Paul has centered his life upon being zealous for God. And if Jesus, if God is like Jesus, then Paul will be like Jesus, okay? Um, so make no mistake though, at this moment, when Paul is traveling down this road, he is amongst the highest of classes, okay? So um, we're about to see what caused this whole crisis of his faith and life and reformed his entire being, okay? Um, so the vision that we start with, he's on the road to Damascus and he's traveling, he's likely on a donkey, he wouldn't have been walking. Um, there's hints in the passage there and later on he talks about this. Um, but it wouldn't have been a horse. It likely would have been a donkey. And there would have been a light. Uh, there was a light. That it, it says this. It says a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So how are we to understand what Paul saw and what he experienced? What would Paul have been thinking? How would this have been received? Now, first off, um, Second Temple Judaism of the first century, Second Temple, I mean like the stone temple that they were in, in the first century. It's the second one, Second Temple Judaism. It's first century Judaism. Um, it was very contemplative. Uh, they would pray many times a day. You would see rabbis walking with their Talmudim following behind them. And these rabbis, as they walk, they're praying. When they wash their hands to eat their food, they pray. When they take their first bite, they pray. When they, there's a prayer for all of it. There's a prayer for when they're finished. There's a prayer for when they go to the bathroom. Um, it has to do with like, thank you, God, for the holes in my body. Like it's, it's, you're like, what a weird thing to be thankful for until one of them doesn't work. Right. Um, now, um, in his day, there were specific meditations and prayers for traveling. Um, the first one is the Shema. We all know this one. If you're walking, uh, it would have been prayed to the rhythm of your footsteps. Um, Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, it's the whole, as you're walking, you're praying the prayer over and over and you're meditating on the things of God because you're not going to waste time. You're going to meditate upon the things of God, maybe the laws of the Lord and all that. But it's, it's there's the Shema is, is sort of the footstep walking prayer. The other prayer, the, the main traveling prayer, was not rhythmic. The meditation that they would pray, it wasn't rhythmic like the Shema uh, found in Deuteronomy 6. Um, so this other one, though, comes from Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. Um, and it was a meditation. It was less of a prayer. It was more of a meditation uh, of prayer. Um, and it's likely that, that Saul slash Paul would have been engaging in this one. Um, you can read a, a lot of Bible scholars, Old Testament scholars, first century scholars talk about how like, it's likely that what Paul was doing is meditating on, upon the things of God and then this meditation becomes manifest in person. Okay, that sounds crazy, but let's, let's work our way through it. Okay, let's, let's talk about it. Um, so the meditation that you would travel with and that you would perform is the reason it's chosen is because it takes place on the road. It's, it's Ezekiel chapter one. It's a vision that Ezekiel has. Um, it is the vision that causes him to become a prophet. So he's a normal person. Uh, this vision happens on this road where he meets God on the road. Shocker. Um, 
and everything changes for him, okay? Uh, so let's walk through this vision. If you, if you want to read it, I, I recommend you read it this week, Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, so in this vision, Ezekiel's traveling down the road, and he comes up upon this caravan, and it's sort of like he's passing this caravan, and this caravan is, is, is different from every other caravan. There are these creatures. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a chariot, and there's four wheels, and there's these four angelic figures that he sees in this vision. And all four of them are, are around the wheels of the carriage, of the, the chariot. Um, and they're all angels, and they all have their wings outstretched. And they have underneath their wings, they have the hands of a person, of a man. Uh, they have the feet of a calf. And so they're walking, <laughs> clippity-clop. Um, and their wings are outstretched so that they are like touching each other um, across the chariot. Picture like the the Ark of the Covenant, right, with the, the angels with their wings outstretched. And these wings, some crazy noises happening outside. Neighbors getting weird. Um, their wings are sort of touching, right? Um, and he looks at them. He starts at their feet. He notices their feet, and he pans up, and he sees their wings. And as he moves up to their faces, he sees their faces, and their faces are different because they, they have four faces and one head, on each being, okay? So the front face is the face of the human, okay? Um, and on, on the right side is the face of a lion, and on the left side is the face of a cow, and on the back of the head is the face of an eagle. A bizarre vision that Ezekiel is having. Um, and by the way, these angelic beings, now that you've got that picture in your head, let's make it even more terrifying. These angelic beings look like they're made out of hot coals, like embers, like kind of glowing. And as they move and as they step and as they sway with the rhythm of the chariot, lightning is coming out of them, okay? Weirdo stuff, okay? Bizarro world. Now, um, each one of these beings is next to a chariot, and they're moving down the road, and the wheels are turning of the chariot. And these wheels are huge on this chariot. They're made of topaz. I didn't bother looking up topaz. Some of you know what it is. You're into jewelry and stuff. Um, and each wheel is covered in these carved eyes. I imagine, you can only imagine, a, a, maybe a big eye in the middle, right? And then little eyes everywhere. Maybe they're even animated, like animated GIF eyes, and they're like blinking as it turns. Super. I'm, I got creepy stuff just pictured in my head right now. Um, and the wheels are spinning, and they are moving the chariot, and the chariot is sitting on these giant wheels. And, and as... As he pans, Ezekiel pans from the feet to the angels to the wheels, huge wheels. He looks up at the chariot. It's likely above him because the wheels are massive. And he looks, he, his eyes pan up to the chariot. And the chariot is sparkling like crystal, okay? And he pans even higher. And there's someone sitting in the chariot. And it's this human-like figure. Um, and so as Ezekiel pans from the wheels up to the chariot to the person, he, they pan up to the chest of the man sitting in the chariot. And he's full of light and he's surrounded by beauty, but he can't see as he pans up, he can't see the man's face sitting in the chariot, okay? Uh, and when he tries to look directly at the man's face who's in the chariot to see who it is, um, he's struck by awe and wonder and glory and he just, he falls down on his face as the voice speaks to him. As he tries to figure out who is sitting in the chariot, maybe he figures it's God and he's trying to see the face of God. And he can't see the face of God. But as he looks, God speaks to him. And it knocks him off his feet and onto the ground. He falls face down onto the ground. 
And the voice tells him to get up and sends him away to a specific location so that he can become the prophet he is supposed to be, all right? And the reason for this vision that Ezekiel has is because this is the start of Ezekiel's ministry. This is how he becomes a prophet. It's where everything changes for him. Um, And most biblical scholars will make a link between what Paul is doing and seeing and this particular prayer and meditation and vision. Imagine with me now, let's go to Paul. He's with his posse and, and he is traveling on the road to Damascus. And as he clippity clops along on his donkey, he's practicing the meditation and the prayers and he's looking at the road and he's deep in a trance and in a, in a, in a prayerful state and a meditative state. And he's gazing upon the road and he's envisioning the angelic beings and he's pondering them. And he turns his eyes to the wheels and he's imagining what they looked like. Okay, you're doing this in your own brain. He's imagining what they looked like and he's pondering their meaning and what they mean. And he's pondering as he moves farther down the road, he's raising his eyes to look at the chariot and he's, he's thinking of the topaz and the, the lights and the, the beauty in the, the, the crystal the crystal glory, glory and brilliance of the chariot. And as he pans his way up, he sees the chest of this man. Um, and he's pondering the brilliance of what this would look like to see this on the road. And as he is t- taking part in this, as he's doing this meditation, this thing becomes more and more real to him. And it's almost, it was sort of a mental picture and now it's becoming a vision. And then suddenly it's becoming this real thing and he can see it. And as he pans his eyes up, he wants to know like Ezekiel, who is sitting in the throne of this chariot. He wants to gaze upon the face of God because he is zealous for God. And as he raises his eyes to see the face of God, suddenly he sees a man. He sees the face and the glory of it knocks him down off of his donkey onto the ground and it speaks to him and he says paul saul sorry saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you and the face that he sees responds i am jesus what has paul been doing for months now And what is he on his way to do now? He is on his way to round up all the Christians and to have them killed and executed, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to be tortured and to be killed, men, women, and children. And and Saul is is doing this prayer and he's he's trying to get a glimpse of who God is because he loves God and he wants to be like God. But when he looks upon the face of God, suddenly he is mortified and terrified to see the face of Jesus, whom he despises. Okay? Now, this is a huge deal. And this is packed with meaning. And it's packed with beauty. And by the way, Paul is blind for three days. And he, goes, he gets sent to the Christians to learn about the things of Jesus now that he realizes that Jesus himself is actually God, that God is like Jesus and that he has been wrong. And of course he's blind for three days because three days is how long it takes to bring about resurrection. Okay. And this man, Saul, 
is going to find resurrection. He's going to become a new person, a new being, a prophet of God to travel and speak the things of God. Now, imagine if you have persecuted people. You've been dragging them out of their homes and beating them and torturing them and putting them to death. And you've been doing so because you think this is what God wants. You've been living in a specific way that you think is the will of God. That You think this is how God set things up and this is how things should be. And then suddenly in one foul swoop, you realize because of an experience that you have, you experience the revelation that God is actually not on your side. That God is actually on the side of the other side the other people whom you've been fighting against. This is a crisis. This is how you bring about conversion. I want, I want you to notice how Saul's conversion happens. And I want us to ponder how God might be calling us to recreate his own methods in this world. I want to talk about Saul's conversion. I want to talk about how we are converted. I want to talk about how we convert other people. Saul has heard the arguments of Stephen. The arguments have not swayed Paul. And so God doesn't send an argument. That is not how God gets a hold of this guy. What does God send? God sends a presence. He sends his presence. The words that, that Jesus says to him, and, and this is huge. I want you to understand this. The words that Jesus says to him are not the words of the powerful. God doesn't send a king to tell Paul that he's wrong. The words that Jesus speaks to Saul with, the words that he uses, whose words are they? Let's read them. It says, it says in, in Acts 9-4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is God really persecuted? No. These are not the words of God. These are the words of the poor. These are the words of the, the often women and children. Um, these are the words of a woman who is abused by her husband simply because his temper is paired with his larger frame. And she can't fathom why a stronger person would persecute a lesser person. It doesn't make any sense to the one being persecuted. Why would you do this? Why are you doing this? This is the question of a child who is pushed around because he, he has no choice. Why would you do this to me? Because you can? Because you're bigger? Because you're stronger? Because there's more of you? Is that why you're doing this? It's, a, it's the words and the question of a marginalized group who simply don't have the numbers to have a presence and a voice. And so they have to ask the question, why are you doing this? And they ask it again and again and again, begging you to give an answer. And there's not one. There's no good answer to oppression. There's no good answer to why someone oppresses another person. There's just not, and we all know this. Paul has no answer. There's no reason that a person should be brutalized. There's no action that should ever earn it. There is no convincing argument for it. I don't believe that anyone need be shot or killed or oppressed for God's work to be done in this world. I don't believe, I don't believe that a single act of violence is necessary for the rest of human history for God's future to come in. I don't believe it. And you can't convince me otherwise because Jesus teaches otherwise. And so now the question of those at the bottom is heard coming from the mouth of God. Those words from the people at the bottom now come, they belong to God. God makes them his own because this is how God changes the world. First, he puts on the body of the eunuch, right? That on the cross, suffering the shame of public, the public naked body, the, the shameful body. God enters into that in his nakedness on the cross. And he enters into like, 
the mindset of the slave in the eunuch being led like a sheep to the slaughter. A sheep has no will of their own. They cannot do what they want. They are led. And Jesus was led. He's, he was not an autonomous being. He, he entered into that, what that was like for a lot of people. And now he puts on, God puts on the body of the oppressed Christians. And he uses their words. And by doing this, he puts on the words of all oppressed peoples everywhere. And all the suffering and the shame in the world, all of it, everywhere, seems to find its final destination in Jesus. It's almost like Jesus is walking along, looking at people suffering and shame because of sin in the world. And he says, I'll take that and put it on. I'll put that on. I'll put that on. Bring that to me. I can put that on. What are you, what are you carrying? Take that off. I can put that on. And it's like Jesus is walking through the world, putting on all suffering and all shame onto himself, and then speaking as the divine from that place. It's beautiful. Okay. In fact, one of the trademarks of true conversion in the Bible, listen to this. One of the actual trademarks, the signs that you are actually a Christian in the Bible, that you are an actual convert to Christianity, is the ability to see Jesus in those who bear the shame of society. That's a telltale sign that you are actually a Christian. And if you don't have that, it's a telltale sign that perhaps you're missing it. Jesus talks about this constantly. He talks about seeing criminals, the poor, the beggar, etc. Those who are not seen as holy but dirty as Jesus. He, he talks in Matthew 25. Here's what it says. It says, for I was hungry. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'll do bits and pieces. For I was hungry and you came. Uh, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did I do all of these things? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, when you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And Jesus says that part of what it means to be a child of God is to see them at the bottom, the prisoners, the criminals, the poor, all of them as equal image bearers of God with you. And to see that God is with them. And so what about Paul's conversion? What happens? Notice how it happens. Again, it wasn't a theological or intellectual argument that turned this religious murderer. He's a murderer. It wasn't an intellectual argument that turned this murderer into a follower of Jesus. It wasn't. It was an incarnation. It was an encounter. And I want you to hear this. Let me start with a, let me start with a bit of a story, because we know encounters are inherently dangerous, okay? We know they are. Encounters have the ability to change. It's the same reason that your parents told you not to hang out with that bad kid. Encounters are dangerous, okay? Now, um, World War I, trench warfare, British and German troops, opposite sides of the field. They're about 150 yards from each other for months and months and months and months, living in these muddy trenches filled with rats and disease, and they're suffering and they're shooting at each other. Christmas Eve rolls around. People on both sides claim to be Christians. First off, think about that for a second. Um, 
but later, not right now. Both sides claim to be Christians. And one side starts singing. The Germans start hearing the British singing Christmas carols because it's Christmas Eve. And the Germans start singing too because they're moved by it because they themselves are pondering Christ and the birth of Christ into this world, their world filled with utter disaster. And so both sides find themselves singing together and slowly they begin to get out of their trenches and sing some more. And they go back to their trenches and they get gifts and they bring gifts and they sing together. And this becomes a regular thing. And the fighting stops for several days. They find themselves pouring tea. They find themselves talking and singing songs and playing soccer, football, if you will. Um, And they're playing games together. And the fighting stops and the killing stops and they begin to trust each other. And then the generals find out. Encounters are dangerous. Encounters keep powerful people from doing what they want to do. And so the generals come in and they replace the soldiers at the front with other soldiers. And the fighting picks back up again because now these soldiers don't know the British and these British soldiers don't know the Germans. And when you replace them all, they can go back to killing because there has, there has now been a reversal of the encounter. The encounter is gone. The encounter is what changes people. Okay. The answer in the face of oppression is encounter. You cannot argue someone into the kingdom. And even if you did, they can just be argued back out again. How many of you grew up in a Christian church, uh, in a Christian home, based upon apologetics? And now how many of your friends are now atheists because they've been argued out? Um, Arguing someone into the kingdom is not a good idea. You must show it to them. Oftentimes, the answer to our enlightenment, though, when we become enlightened, when we are awakened to something, the things of God, sometimes the response to our own enlightenment is to force it upon others, to yell and scream and to argue and to point and to mock. And sometimes someone who is enlightened will even run around trying to light others on fire, right? In an attempt to enlighten them. When we do this, we end up destroying people. You cannot lead someone where they don't want to go. You cannot force enlightenment on anyone. It is not helpful. If an enlightened person wants to change another person, if they want to enlighten someone else, all they can do is stay close and shine brightly, as bright as they can, so that they can light the way. You have to light the way, the path, not the people. Light the path. Don't try to light the people. That'll tweet. And the answer (laughs) The answer to the one who rejects the abstract ideas, um, the answer to the one who will not intellectually ascend is encounter, always. What did Jesus do when Paul was wrong about him? Jesus didn't ostracize Paul. He didn't condemn Paul. He incarnated and drew near to Paul. He became present. He showed himself to Paul. He revealed himself to, to Paul. He revealed who he was. God in the flesh, in the street. That is how people are changed. That's it. In the flesh, in the street. Um, Screaming at someone about how stupid they are and how ignorant they are is not an encounter. It is not incarnational. It is not what Jesus did at all. Israel was never changed by the words of the prophet. 
Time after time after time, the prophets made proclamations and they never changed. But the entire world changed when God came in the flesh. The steadfast and peaceful proclamation of what God is doing in the world while, while bravely doing it ourselves is the way to change people. The steadfast presence. When everything is in chaos, God's people present in the middle of it, holy and steadfast. That is how we bring Christ into the streets. We are to be the faithful presence of Jesus in the midst of all of it, not reactive presence. Okay. We do not turn away. We do not move in the direction uh, 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 away from the chaos. We move in the direction of freedom and healing, and we light the way for others to follow all the time. Now, let's talk about your growth. Let's talk about growth in general. Um, and this is the last thing we'll do before, before we go to communion and our collect prayer. Um, growth. I am convinced that so many of us will one day be shocked to find that we spent our whole lives on one side of an issue only to find that God was on the other side. And I mean that. My grandfather used to say, when we all get to heaven, what a day of correction that will be. Um, I think we will find God present and working in those who we were working against. And I think that God was actually with them the whole time is what, is what we will find. Um, and I think we'll be shocked about that. Like Paul trying to get a glimpse of, of, of his Lord in the chariot, meditating upon this. And this thing becomes real, right, tangible in front of him. And he gazes up and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to try to glimpse God, the God of my people and the beauty of the one who I follow. And he lifts his eyes up and who does he see actually sitting on the throne? Their God. He sees that he has been wrong. I think we need to spend more time pondering that than we do. Um, but what do you do when you find out you've been on the wrong side? What do you do when you find out you've been wrong? What do you do when a million people tell you that something is happening? There's two responses. You can listen and you can enter into conversation or you could go and try to find the two or three that agree with you. And you could look at them and say, finally, someone who gets it. That's not humble. That's not the work of Jesus. Learning something new. Hear this. Learning something new and changing your mind is not a sign of failure. Don't look at it as a sign of failure. It's not. Learning something new and changing your mind is a sign of growth. It's a sign of maturity. Once you know a new thing, you must follow that new thing. You must move forward. It is a bad sign if you have all the same views right now that you had two and a half years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. If you have the same views about everything that you had back then, that's not a sign of strength. It's a sign that you have learned nothing and you have not grown. Okay? It means you're ignoring everything that God is doing. And when you learn, you must change. You cannot expect or wait for others to join you. <clears throat> you must move. When you get the new information, grab it and go. 
You cannot fear what your enlightenment will cost you. You cannot. To learn new information and to change in light of that information is not giving in. It's not compromising your beliefs. It's not kowtowing to culture. It is not the things. It's called growth. It's a strength. It's not a weakness. It is what God has done for humanity, revealing himself slowly over time, bit by bit, since the beginning of time. It's called repentance. It is the first thing that Jesus started his message with. His message starts with repent. The kingdom is here. In other words, it's time to change because I'm going to now reveal things to you that you did not know before. And when you learn these new things, you must repent of the old things. I know that some people, when you grow, will be upset with you. Always. And hear me, that hurts. And I don't minimize that. But listen, the only people who are upset about your growth is the people who lack growth of their own. And therefore, your growth is revealing their lack of growth. And that upsets them. You've gotten off the couch and you've walked away and left them sitting there. And that upsets them because you are acting like a mirror and you are shining a reflection in their face to say, look, I'm not going to stay here any longer. I'm going to grow and move and change. You are a mirror to them. If they do not like what they see in that mirror, they will get mad at you. They will attempt to break the mirror, okay? Because they think if they can break the mirror, they can break the, the change and the information and they can't, okay? Sometimes what they need, what they need, if they are to change, is for you to just simply keep moving forward. And sometimes, um, I'm having a light flicker thing. It's weird. And sometimes only when someone finds themselves the last person, when everyone has changed, they will look at themselves and see themselves and look around and say, why is everybody moving forward? Why is everybody moving on? Why is everyone falling away? I am the last remaining true follower. That's when they begin to deconstruct. When they find themselves the last person to repent and change, that's when they'll begin to consider it. Some people, that's the path. And it's okay. It's hard. Not everyone can do it. Uh, some people water. Some people plant. And some people reap. You may not know what part you're playing in the lives of the people around you, but keep up the work. You don't need to try and force enlightenment on anyone. They will follow your light. No one wants to be alone in the dark. Nobody. Keep moving. I don't have a segue into communion. I'm just going to take it now. So if you have your elements, grab them and... Uh, Bring them into your, uh, your presence here. Uh, we, have, we have the body of Christ, which has been broken for us, for our healing, for our salvation. It is the presence of God in this world who put on the suffering of all those at the bottom, spoke their words, experienced their experiences, and invites all to enter into it. And then we have the blood of Christ poured out 
for all of us, washing and cleansing. Um, the body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been poured out for you. Uh, we do this to remember the things of Jesus. Every time we come together, however it looks. And we will be together soon again. Don't worry. Body of Christ broken for you, Watermark. Blood of Christ poured out for you. For healing, salvation of the world. Father, I lift up those who are watching this. Fill them with your spirit. Bind us together. Let us become the city on the hill. A light that can't be hidden. Lighting the way forward. But let us do this how you do it. Speaking the words of salvation. Speaking the words of those who are calling out for that salvation and taking part in it, taking part in your work. Let that change us. Allow us to be broken and poured out for the healing of all, for the restoration and reconciliation of all things to you, all heaven and earth and all people. Amen. We have a new collect prayer this week. I'll have it up here. Pray with me. God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you have loved us. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. May we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless, and standing against injustice wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other. In a chaotic world, let us bring peace, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. I, uh, I miss you all, and I love you all, uh, and I long for the day when we will come back together, and I think we will be reborn. And I think we will be the people, or at least on our way to becoming the people God wants us to be. Go in peace.